Welcome to the Patriot Pastors Podcast. I am your co-host, Harold Smith, joined by my good friend, Wade Lentz, as always. And today we have, all oh, listen to that. Even though it is the Patriot Pastors Podcast, and we're going to talk about the American Revolution, for some odd reason, I'm opening up with Canada Dry Zero Sugar. Oh, all wow. the taste of Canada without the guilt. Uh, how about that, Wade? I, I think you're a traitor. I almost spit Canada dry on my computer. <laughs> is it, is Canada dry? Yeah, it's dry. It's, it's like uh, no alcohol. It's dry. Wow. That's why Baptists love it. You know, I mean, you can drink this thing in the church, uh, and, and no guilt whatsoever. I, I have heard of that, but I've never tasted Canada dry. It doesn't, it's kind of like an oxymoron. You're going to drink something that's dry. I mean, some Baptists wouldn't let their kids drink this cause it says ginger ale and ale is bad, right? <laughs> it's non-alcoholic dry ginger ale. So yeah, yeah. You know, I guess if you're a fundamentalist preacher's kid, you probably sneak out behind the house, behind the parsonage <laughs> and sit down and drink you a can of ginger ale dry. And yeah, man, you, you are really a wild one. If you do that, you probably yeah. grow up and be a patriot. Yeah. And you have been doing some traveling this, uh, last few weeks. I you have like gone to Revere. I feel like old Paul Revere the last few weeks. <laughs> uh, you went I to did. Virginia. Yes, I, I did. I, I, I went through North Carolina. We took about a five day vacation in between our annual preachers, of grace conference where you and I got to spend a little bit of time together along with mm -hmm. 55 other preachers. Um, we had a great preachers of grace conference and, um, and then, I preached at First Baptist Roland, where I, uh, Roland, Oklahoma, where I'm the interim. Soon as service was over, Missy and I hopped in the car and we headed to North Carolina. We got out there Monday afternoon. We spent a few days near Wilmington, uh, spent a lot of time on the beach. That's what my wife likes to do. But we did go through historic Wilmington, which was a pretty old coastal town there in North Carolina. And, uh, and then from there, we went to Virginia. Where I was, um, I guess you would say I was, I was really going to Virginia to preach, uh, Chestnut Grove Baptist churches, 200th church anniversary, and then follow that up wow. with a revival four night revival service. And, and that went very well. The church was very encouraged. The attendance was great. Um, it was needed. I, they enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was good for all. But while I was in Virginia, I really tried to take in some history because Virginia kind of like Massachusetts is one of those just, if you're into colonial history, mm -hmm. Virginia has it, you know, um, Massachusetts has, you, you think of, of, of the battles of the revolutionary war, you're thinking of like Bunker Hill, Lexington, Concord, but you start looking, a lot of those leaders were coming out of not only new England, but in the middle colonies were coming out of Virginia. Yeah. That's ultimately where the war you know, for, for all extents and purposes ended in Yorktown, Virginia, where Cornwallis mm -hmm. was backed up against the uh, Chesapeake Bay with nowhere to go and no one to rescue him. The French uh, Navy came in and sealed off the Chesapeake Bay. And then Washington began shelling Yorktown and mm -hmm. Cornwallis had no choice but to surrender. And that effectively ended the war. And, um, uh, Anyways, I went to Yorktown. I saw that. I, I stood there and looked at those those little uh, 
they call them redoubts, but just kind of foxholes where the two sides were entrenched against each other. Uh, I looked wow. at the city. I mean, I went in a 300 and something year old home, uh, that was owned by, by, uh, Thomas Nelson, who was a signer of the declaration of independence. And he was actually leading a Virginia militia group against his own hometown. And they mm. were shelling his own home uh, that was functioning kind of as a, uh, like a hospital. It was a three-story, uh, brick home and there's still cannonballs from the revolutionary war stuck in the walls of that. You can wow. see wedged in the bricks. That's crazy. I mean, it, I, you're just looking at something. You're like, okay, man, 1781, that steel cannonball was launched in there from like a mile or some odd away. <laughs> and it's still, I mean, they just, they just grouted around it when they touched up the brick and left yeah. it. Yeah, Man, it is cool. And that's amazing. That, that was all cool to me. And, um, I went to chancellorsville, which is a civil war battle where uh -huh. our hero, uh, Stonewall Jackson was shot and lost his arm to friendly. Yeah. Fire. Saw the, the, um, surgical kit they used to take off Jackson's arm. And, uh, then I went to the home where he died and, uh, you know, you can go in the room, the little bedroom where he stayed and on a, a nearby plantation. And then, um, I went to Appomattox that was near where I was preaching. So I saw where general Lee surrendered the army of Northern Virginia to grant, which also kind of ultimately brought an end to the civil war and, uh, near App uh, Appomattox courthouse in the national park is the, the civil war, American civil war museum. And in there was a lot of really cool artifacts. I think that's where I was sitting mm. years of AP Hills pipe and tobacco pouch. And yeah, yeah. There was a uniform in there worn by General Robert E. Lee. There were swords in there from, uh, I, I want to say the sword from uh, General Pickett, you know, in the famous Pickett's Charge. That's mm -hmm. a lot of that sort of thing was was in that museum. That's a privately owned museum. It was great. I I love history, so I love going to all these sites. I saw the oh, yeah. George Washington, you know, used during the Revolutionary War. The actual, I mean, wow. it was frayed and worn, but you can see it and. So I'm just eating all this stuff up. And one of the places I went to was a place called Red Hill, which was the last home of Patrick Henry. He lived the last three or four years of his life in Red Hill, Virginia, had a law office there. And, um, I, I knew of Patrick Henry just because of the famous mm -hmm. line, give me liberty or give me death. You know, that, that was really all I knew. I knew he was a friend of Baptist and religious yeah. liberties, but I really didn't know that much more about him. So going there you get to see i learned a lot more about patrick henry yeah and that really kind of i was like man I, there's a lot more to this guy than just give me liberty or give me death and mm -hmm. so i kind of came back from there with a just a like hey man i, I need to study more you know, there's a lot i don't know and right and i enjoy studying history especially biographies uh learning about other mm -hmm. people's lives you familiar with patrick henry you know, I, I was, I'm just like you, I was familiar with that famous speech and that famous line within that speech. But other than that, I did not know a whole lot, but I have begun reading about him recently and just very intrigued with, with him. And let me just say, I'm jealous, man. You get to see all those historical spots that I would love to see. And hopefully one day I'll be able to, to visit there. I want us to go back in time. Let's go back to the early 
American colonial days to the year 1736. In the year 1736, an American patriot was born. His name was Patrick Henry. He was the second of nine children. Uh, Patrick Henry grew up in what we would call a prosperous family. Uh, Patrick Henry was the son of John Henry and Sarah Henry, who were Scottish immigrants. Uh, His family owned a large tobacco farm, uh, which provided them a a good living. Um, One thing I noticed about reading about Patrick Henry's life is that he had uh, a very limited education. Uh, you would think a guy that was a lawyer and a great uh, statesman was a very well-educated individual, but he was not. He attended a local school for a short period of time. As a matter of fact, by the age of 10, he left that little school, and his father uh, was his tutor, uh, you know, just teaching him some of the basic things in his early teenage years. Uh, he was a guy that, uh, you know, typical boy. He loved fishing and hunting a lot more than, than academics at that time. And so he was uh, very so you're busy. Saying, you're saying there's hope for me, Wade. <laughs> That's right. There <laughs> is hope for you, for sure. Uh, when he was 18 in 1754, Patrick Henry married Sarah Shelton. Uh, She came from a very respected and influential family. As a matter of fact, listen to this, Harold. As a wedding gift from his father-in-law, he gave Patrick 300 acres. Wow. You know, all I got from my father-in-law was a pat on the back, and he said, hey, good luck. (laughs) <laughs> but he, Patrick received 300 acres. Well, that was back when land was new, you know, they were spreading <laughs> yeah. it around pretty good back then. That's right. <laughs> oh me. So they, they, uh, married, they eventually had six children. And I found this very interesting as well. Uh, initially Patrick Henry tried various career paths. Uh, he worked as a store, uh, storekeeper. He worked as a farmer and even attempted to run a store with his father-in-law, but that did not work out. And so he struggled uh, to find some success in, in all those ventures. But despite of all uh, those, despite his lack of education, Henry developed a keen interest in law and began studying legal documents and legal books all on his own. He eventually became a lawyer, which in those days you could become a lawyer without having a formal law degree. So long as you were very, uh, well-grounded in law and so forth, you could be a lawyer. Uh, his interest in public speaking also emerged d- during this time. And so he would often engage in, de- in debates at local taverns and public gatherings. As a matter of fact, I was reading that one particular friend of his was Thomas Jefferson, who at the age of 17, Thomas Jefferson met him at one of these local taverns and heard Patrick Henry, who was six years older than Jefferson. Um, and they became great friends. 
And so that kind of leads us to where you t- tell us about his political life. You were talking about Thomas Jefferson. There was actually a quote, a pretty famous quote by Thomas Jefferson, where he says, Patrick Henry was the greatest orator that ever lived. Yeah. And I mean, so you're talking about a guy who's skilled in speaking, public speaking primarily. And one of the things they credited Patrick Henry's public speaking to was the influence of a Presbyterian minister named Samuel Davies. Mm-hmm. It's known to be a very fiery preacher, very animated. And um, Patrick Henry was a devout believer in Jesus Christ. He, near his death, you know, he talked to, to his doctor and uh, basically said, you know, I, I pity people that don't have faith in Christ. I mean, the Christian religion gives us so much hope and death. How could anybody die without that? The hope that we have as Christians. And so, so Patrick Henry, if the Lord had called him to be a preacher, I would have put him right up there with George Whitfield. He had that skill of oratory. Sure. That skill of being able to speak just like we, you know, his famous line, give me Liberty or give me death. Um, they said that line was just lifted instantly out of his speech and just spread abroad. And and that was used to kind of spark, you know, the spirit of independence, but the case, the court case that made young, uh, Patrick Henry famous was called the Parsons cause. And you were talking about his limited, um, his limited education. His dad grew up poor but won a scholarship to the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. Mm. So his dad had a great formal education because it was kind of like a poverty scholarship. You'd write an article. They would select one poor person to go to the University of Aberdeen. That was his dad, John Henry. And so he, he tried all this work, and he eventually settles on lawyer, and he's working in a tavern belonging to his family directly across the street from the Hanover County Courthouse. Mm -hmm. which is the third oldest courthouse in America today, still in existence. It's still there. It still works. And so he would hear all these debates while he's working in this tavern and and running this store. He would be engaged in political discussion. He's got a great education from his father and a small school. He becomes a, a kind of a public defendant, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what happens in this famous case called the Parsons cause in, in 1858, Virginia passed what was called the Two Penny Act. Okay. 1758. Yeah. What did I say? 1858? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's better than 1958. At least I'm. <laughs> <laughs> At 1758, they passed the Two Penny Act. And there was legislation passed in 1748 that said Virginia's clergy, this would be the, the Church of England clergy that were, were, handling churches in Virginia, this was mandatory payment from the citizens of Virginia of 16,000 pounds of tobacco per year. So every tobacco farmer would have to contribute tobacco until they reached the 16,000 pound mark. That was off the top taxes. And that wasn't taxes for roads or hospitals or fire department. Mm -hmm. That was taxes to the church of England. That was yeah. on top of all your other taxes. Right. And so in 1848, that, that levy was, was laid down. Well, fast forward to 1758 
when this two penny act come about, what was the, you know, what's the purpose of that? 1758 was a real bad harvest year for tobacco. Hmm. You, you talk about drought and rain. Tobacco is one of the hardest crops to grow because of its rich sap, which provides tobacco, its flavor. It attracts grasshoppers and it attracts worms. And before you could spray and, and before you could, uh, you know, do the things we do today to, to yeah. bug damage, tobacco was a labor intensive crop. You had to manually pick all these worms off. Tobacco wants to put out little suckers and the suckers would make seeds. And when it starts making seeds, it quits making leaves. So now they spray tobacco so that it doesn't make suckers. Back then you had to manually pick the suckers off. So mm. tobacco was a really labor intensive crop. And it was yeah. the primary crop of Virginia. And so by just, they didn't have cash. They had tobacco. So they paid in tobacco. Well, when 1758 turned off bad for tobacco, instead of being two cents a pound, that's the two penny act. That's what it had always brought. Tobacco yeah. was now bringing six cents a pound. Hmm. I'm going on a long rabbit trail here, but we're going to make a point. If the preachers were paid in 16,000 pounds of tobacco and tobacco triples in price, the parson's salaries all just tripled. Wow. So I just, let's put yourself in this perspective and, and let's say you're a pastor and you're making 50,000 a year in today's money. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden with the tobacco market booming and not because there's plenty of tobacco, there is no tobacco. Yeah. You're now making $150,000 a year. That let's put this in today's money. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden your kids now have, you got college money. You can buy a lake house. You just tripled your income. A Learjet. Yeah. And so Virginia's <laughs> government says, well, wait a minute, just because you think, well, now we're going to get six cents a pound for this. The farmers don't have the tobacco to pay. That's why the price is up. They didn't get as good a harvest. Yeah. So when you take a farmer that only got half of his harvest, and he still has to pay the same amount, 16,000 pounds. He doesn't have as much to pay from. You're charging him really more than triple mm -hmm. because he, he's got to sell what's left to pay for his expenses, and he doesn't have as much to sell. So the government steps in and says, wait a minute, this is not right. This is the Virginia government. They passed the Two-Penny Act. They said, look, all of you, even though it's it's bad for for tobacco, you're still going to get your regular salary of two cents per pound, just like you were getting. And mm -hmm. the farmers are just, all, that's all they got to do. Okay. Well, here's the problem with that. King George steps in and vetoes. I mean, he's the king of all the English empire. He steps in and vetoes the act of this one colony. And so now you've got a king who's, doesn't care for the farmers producing the tobacco, right? Doesn't care for their plight, doesn't care for their bills and just says, well, no, I'm going to award every minister, uh, a, a triple salary. And so when King George steps in and does this, now the King says, well, your state law is no longer valid. Your, your colonial law, let me say is no longer valid. So it just takes a few years in 1862 and a, Church of England minister named James Maury. He sues Hanover County and he mm -hmm. says, Hey, I want my back pay from 18 or from 1762 all the way back to 1758. I want five years back pay and I want the six cents a pound. Well, you can't get blood out of a turnip, you know? 
Yeah. So he's suing the state of Virginia. Imagine a preacher today <laughs> suing Arkansas saying, give me all my back money that you should owe me from taxes. Yeah. So the court kind of drags its feet on this, trying to put it away, but Mari doesn't let it go. He said, I'm not just suing for me. I'm, I want every preacher to get their back pay. Mm-hmm. Now we've got in what is in essence a class action lawsuit. Right. So that was initiated April 1st, April Fool's Day, by the way, 1762. November 5th, 1763, a full year and a half later, the court finally hears his case and they say, yeah, you, you, you know, the king vetoed it. You got a valid case. So they set December a month later, 1763, as a date for a jury trial to settle the damages. Mm. How do we determine exactly how much money you need. So they're going to select a 12 man jury to do this. The guy that originally represented Mari wasn't available to represent him in the jury trial to settle damages. So it went to another County lawyer, if you will, a public defendant named an unknown guy named Patrick Henry. Yeah. I mean, nobody, I mean, nobody knows this guy. He's a nobody. Yeah. And this is a case that's already been settled. Well, Patrick Henry goes into the Hanover courthouse on this jury case, and he speaks so forcefully and so passionately that he rails on the king for for being involved in a colonial matter. He rails on the king for not caring for farmers. He Mm -hmm. rails on the king for for his uh, abuse of religious uh, taxation. I mean, he just so forceful. He gets everybody worked up into a a, a froth over this. I mean, Mm -hmm. The whole, the whole jury leaves and comes back. And I mean, we're expecting a a settlement in, in, you know, thousands of pounds of dollars, you know, right. They come back and award (laughs) Reverend James Murray, one penny, the lowest amount they could award him was one penny. He got one penny damages for five years that he sued (laughs) for on behalf of all of them. So what this was, was. The jury walked out and they, it kind of dawned on them, man, we just sided with the citizens instead of the king. Right. And so essentially we're rejecting the king's authority to demand taxes for churches. I mean, this is, I mean, this is essentially the first victory for religious freedom in mm-hmm. a, a church state colony. Right. So we don't really know exactly what all was said. We just know from that time on, Patrick Henry was famous for his refuting of the king and the abuses and tyranny. But we did get a little bit of what was said from Reverend Mari himself because he wrote a letter to another minister because they're like, hey, man, how's that? How's that lawsuit coming along? Well, we're all going to mm-hmm. get back pay. You know, I'd like to go to like to go tour Europe on vacation. And uh, here's what he said. He said, Henry argued that a king by disallowing acts of this salutary nature from being the father of his people degenerated into a tyrant and forfeits the right to his subjects obedience. He Mm. said the king forces people to work harder to pay for their religious liberty, not religious liberty, their religious leaders and rulers. He said, right. he's a tyrant. He, he's no longer a king. He now forces us to reject obedience to him. This put Patrick Henry as the into the forefront, this ability to speak and be so forceful and make 
make uh, persuasive arguments from from December of eighteen six or seventeen sixty three on. He just becomes famous throughout the colony of Virginia, and then as they began to debate uh, the Declaration of Independence and mm-hmm. uh, separating from England, his fame as a speaker rises, and he pretty much kind of does like Whitfield during Whitfield's uh, The Great Awakening, where he would travel and preach. Patrick Henry had a pulpit that he traveled with, just like Whitfield had. You wow. can really see it at Red Hill, the original pulpits there. It's got his name on it in brass. He would ride up somewhere, maybe on a courthouse steps, and he would set up his podium, and he would lay his papers out, and he would begin to to to, to speak to the crowds. And uh, this made him a great mm-hmm. politician. He was a five-term Virginia governor. No, no other governor served as many times as he has. He served nationally. He served uh, in the in the colonial side. He served in the con- uh, the the uh, constitutional Congress. Continental. Continental Congress. Yeah. Yeah. He served on the constitutional committee. Yeah. Um, he was instrumental in getting us a Bill of Rights because he mm-hmm. didn't like having just a constitution without some guaranteed provisions for our rights. He he was just a tremendous force. Um, but with all good patriots. I think the best patriots of this time were not just politicians. I think they had to put their necks on the line. They you did. Um, I, I've never been a big Thomas Jefferson fan. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson was more of a politician. He was not a, he didn't lead men into battle. He wasn't Alexander Hamilton. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't um, uh, George Washington. Jackson. Yeah. yeah. He, he wasn't a man, but one of um, Patrick Henry's big claims to fame was he led the first patriot offensive against the crown and this is referred to as the gunpowder incident or the gunpowder affair lord dunmore was the colonial royal governor of the colony of virginia and he decided he was going to start taking gunpowder away from the virginians just in case things went south and secure it for the king and so on april 20th 1775 dunmore ordered all the gunpowder in the port of williamsburg which was um, a, a military port guarding the Chesapeake. He said, mm-hmm. I want all of that gunpowder off and I want to load it onto Royal Navy ships so that we can ensure the King gets use of it. And not these, these rebels. Well, militia gets word that what Dunmore's doing. So they start mustering from all across the colony. And if you've ever been to this part of Virginia, Williamsburg is at the end of a big, long peninsula. And so as they're mustering up together, Patrick Henry's like, we don't have time to get a big force. So he grabs a smaller force of people and says, let's, let's get going. And they head to the far end and they get down there and they confront these troops that are loading all this powder on the ships. And he demands from Lord Dunmore, the governor, either you put the gunpowder back in Virginia or you pay for it. Mm. And they're ready to fight. And, And Henry's ready to fight. And so Lord Dunmore, to keep from getting these ships that are now all packed with gunpowder blown to pieces, right. pays 330 pounds to Patrick Henry to be given to the state of Virginia. And this ultimately settles it without gunfire, but it also gets the state or the colony of Virginia paid for the gunpowder that was hauled away. This all occurs the day after Lexington and Concord. 
but the news of what was happening in Lexington and Concord doesn't even reach Virginia for a couple more days. And so that makes this the first Patriot offensive in yeah. Lexington and Concord. It was the British coming to seize things in Virginia. It was Patrick Henry going to get back what was taken from them. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, he's, he's a phenomenal man. And he went on to advocate for true religious liberties mm-hmm. because he saw what had happened to Baptist. He, he understood yes. uh, the overreaches of a government when it's entangled with religion and I would say he would be the furthest thing from a Christian nationalist today. What about you, Wade? Yeah. You know, just you telling the listeners about more about Patrick Henry and especially as it pertains to the, uh, the Parsons cause, it just tells us that he had a uh, very discerning heart to discern injustice and not only to discern it, but to confront it and to speak out against it as he did in that Parsons cause and, um, you know, he put his neck on the line. He was going yeah. against the, the church of England, uh, England itself. And there you're right. People, there were people calling him a traitor. You know, this oh, guy yeah. be hanged for treason for what he said in the court. Yes, that's right. But it was from that event that, uh, that really catapulted him to fame within the, the Patriot, uh, side of the, of, of the colonial days. I will mention this, um, about Patrick Henry. He was an anti-federalist, um, meaning an anti-federalist believed that the constitution that they were, uh, putting together, uh, Patrick Henry believed it gave too much power to the federal government. Mm-hmm. And it was something, it was a, it was a document that would, really was different from the articles of confederation that preceded the constitution that really gave states rights, more rights. And, um, so Henry really fought the constitution being ratified. And again, because of his opposition toward it, that's what, uh, allowed the, uh, the men to create the bill of rights, the bill of rights that we still hold to today. But, you know, think about this as he's thinking about the overreach or the potential overreach of the constitution. Um, you know, he, he was correct. Mm -hmm. You just go 70 years in, in the future, you have the civil war, which is over that very document. Uh, Lincoln says, I have the right uh, to do what I want as federal power. The states were saying, no, you do not have that right. And Patrick Henry was saying in the constitution, you don't have it outlined well enough and it's up for interpretation Yeah, and we're suffering for it today. Yeah. And you know, people will say, well, we settled that in the, in the civil war, the federal government does have this authority. Okay. The federal government says marijuana is illegal. Mm-hmm. Every state that's granting it for public consumption is exercising state rights in the issue of, of marijuana. So it, it's, it, you can't have it both ways. You can't say you're for the state having each individual state having autonomy. If, if you're against pot, so all the potheads now have to make a decision yeah. where, well, whose right. side are we going to choose, you know? Yeah. And, so on college campuses everywhere, you know, they all want this strong federal government, 
but they're enjoying their state's rights because they can go out and get them a, a dispensary card and smoke all the dope they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's basically the way it, it works. And there needs to be a, a balance there. There needs to be enough federal government to keep all the states together, but there needs to be enough leeway so that each state can govern according to its own dictates. Because Wade, the things that are important to Arkansans are not important to Californians. Things right. that are important to Texans are not important to New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be enough individuality within the states that they can function and enough federal government so that we're all on the same page. I would say this is the way churches work within yeah. Christianity. You know, right. we have Baptist churches and other churches, but Baptist churches need to have some basic overarching doctrines that make us yes. Baptist. But we need the individual church liberty to govern ourselves according to the dictates of our conscience. Mm-hmm. And uh, Baptists are the only churches, only denomination of churches that does that. Most others are ran by snods or presbyteries or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so our government was kind of built on Baptistic principles, and Baptists were the ones who advocated for religious freedom. Patrick Henry was influenced by Baptists, knew this cause, had discernment, and God gave this good Christian man the oratory skills to populate it and to spread it and to be yes. convincing. And, and preachers, we should have that same oratory skill today. Preaching mm-hmm. is the primary means of educating the congregation. Everybody should read their Bible. Everybody should read Christian books but not at the expense that you neglect the forsaking of yourselves, the assembling of yourselves together and sitting under the gift of God to the church, preachers, pastor, teachers, as it says in yes. Ephesians four eleven, And so God gives politicians to speak, but he gives pastors to speak. And if you're a Christian, do not neglect sitting under the ministry of the word of God. It's Amen. Absolutely. No excuse for that. Let me, let me say this very quick uh, before we, have to get off of here about out of time we got about we're about out of time we are running out um his age patrick henry when he was representing the parsons cause he was in his 30s um we think about when in 1776 he was just 40 washington was 44 jefferson was 33 aaron burr was 20 alexander hamilton 21 so you have all these young men who were filled with zeal and knowledge, compare that to today. And we are a country that is being ran by old, corrupt politicians. Bingo. Connell, Feinstein, Pelosi. We need to pray that God would raise up some young men. Young men need to be sober-minded. They're still playing video games. I mean, they're they're still obsessed. I mean, Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I acted as a child. We ought to let kids be kids. But at some point in time, we've got to put aside childish things and think seriously. I can't think of any kids I know in that age bracket, mid twenties, early thirties that have the wherewithal to go stand in a federal court or a colonial court and argue mm. against the king and do it persuasively in an educated manner and self-taught self-taught. So, Hey, like you said, there's hope for you. There's also hope for me. <laughs> well, listen, podcast, man. Wade, you wrap it up. Yeah, it has been a joy to, uh, to 
do this episode. I, I enjoy history. I love it, especially American history. And it has been a while since you and I have, have done a podcast. It's been a long summer, a very busy summer. May the Lord bless you. And drink Canada dry before you die.